welcome to the Seeds Church Podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe to us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and on our Apple and Spotify podcasts. We hope you enjoy this inspiring message from our Sunday service. Today's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 32. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of John, and now something greater than John is here. Well, good morning. I'm Ashley Davis, and I'm assisting the team here at Seeds. To understand the reading today, we're going to look at uh, all of chapter 11 as a whole. So if you have your scriptures, that would be really, really helpful. We're going to exegete quite swiftly through it so I can finally get to my point once again. uh, My prayer is that uh, it'll be worth the wait. So Lord, open our ears to hear your word. Amen. Last week, Sarah spoke on the first section of Luke 11 concerning prayer. You'll remember it, of course, where it's uh, Jesus' disciples ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. After some good teaching, that section concluded in verse 13 with, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that was Jesus' teaching on prayer. And then verse 13 um, is immediately followed, not surprisingly, by verse 14, which says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Then Jesus goes on to explain, how could it possibly be Beelzebul as a house divided against itself will will simply fall? And he concludes this conversation from verse 24 on, and I read it. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house that I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put it put in order. Then it goes out and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And then straight after that next verse, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, that's Jesus, blessed rather are those who hear and obey the word of God. 
The woman's blessing Jesus' mother was not unusual in that culture, but Jesus transforms that remark into another opportunity to declare where the real blessing in life resides, and it's in those who hear and obey God's word. Hearing and obeying. I I just got this sense that I've heard that somewhere before. Jonathan. Then we move on. The sign of Jonah. We pick up where we were reading earlier. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. When I read that, I I wonder whether we are a wicked generation still seeking a sign. Anyway, at this point, we know that Jesus has been on the road in in that region teaching for a couple of years now, two years, and uh, quite recently, he has resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So he's turned his face towards that final destination. And even with all of that, two years of teaching, two years plus, um, people wanted Jesus to prove by some sign or attesting miracle that he was from God. Their hearts were hard and it blinded them to the miracles that Jesus had been doing for those two years. And even if they had not personally seen these things about Jesus, they would have heard about him because he openly healed all manner of diseases and and sicknesses in accordance with the prophecies about the Messiah. You'll remember Luke chapter 7 verse 22, John says, are you the one? And Jesus says to his disciples to go back and tell that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. But those miracles were not enough for them. They wanted a sign from heaven. I wonder what that could have been. Perhaps they wanted something on a cosmic scale, such as being prophesied in Joel chapter 2 and verse 31. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That might have done it for them. Or perhaps they wanted a repeat of Exodus chapter 19 where the Lord spoke from the heavens with thunder, lightning, hail and trumpets on Mount Sinai. What they wanted, however, disturbs Jesus and he rebukes them and tells them that even a, a, greater, even a greater sign would be given and that would be the sign of Jonah. Now you remember the story of Jonah who eventually reluctantly goes to Nineveh. Nineveh was an ancient Assyrian city in Upper Mesopotamia located in modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq. It is located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River and was the capital uh, and the largest city of the Assyrian Empire and for a couple of decades it was actually the largest city in the world. The Assyrian Ninevites worshipped, among other gods, Dagon. Images of Dagon have been found on the entrance to the original palace gates and on a variety of official government seals. Just as a by the by, Dagon was a fish god. What a wonderful coincidence that when the God of Israel called the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh, Jonah hopped on a boat going the other way, was tossed overboard, swallowed by some sort of big fish, spent three days in the belly of this fish, 
spat up on the shores of Nineveh and then gave probably the shortest sermon in the history of the prophets, certainly shorter than any I have ever done. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Your offering will be taken up. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's it. That's what he said, except for that last bit. The people believed God, called a fast, put on sackcloth and ashes and repented. And Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And quite frankly, Jonah was ticked off that God had not destroyed those wicked, evil Gentiles. God's mercy and grace upsets a lot of folks, both then and now. So what is the sign of Jonah? Well, the obvious connection to Jonah is the three days in the belly of the fish and Jesus' three days from the cross to resurrection. But I'm not entirely sure that that is the point here, given the context. Verse 32, chapter 11. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. The sign of Jonah is a call to repent. Jesus then reinforces that by referencing the Queen of the South who visits Solomon to hear God's wisdom from him. You can find that in Kings and Chronicles. She came from southern Arabia to hear his teaching. Now someone greater than both Jonah and Solomon stands before them, and in case you don't get the point, that's Jesus, and his teaching, his words, his works, his ways offers what those who have gone before longed to see but never got to see. In fact, it says, if this generation does not repent, the Queen of the South and the men of Nineveh will stand at the judgment to testify against this generation, that's Jesus' generation, for what they are missing in Jesus. Their testimony will condemn them. Now, folks, this is, this is a warning. To refuse Jesus is to face rejection in judgment and the condemnation of previous generations who were eagerly looking forward for this day to come. As a little aside, I just want to point out how strong this warning is. You'll recall the common Jewish prayer was, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile or a woman. Jesus says that these wicked Gentile men and this Gentile woman will stand in judgment of those who hear the teaching of Jesus and do not obey. And then Luke moves on, the lamp of the body. It's an illustration about a lamp uh, uh, concerning what happens if we hear and do not obey. Verse 33, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And in my words, if you spirit, fill your spiritual eye with the wrong stuff, your spiritual insides are going to be contaminated. Your spiritual insides will be like a lamp hidden under a bucket, useless. And then Jesus moves on, woes on the Pharisees and the experts of the law. He, he accepts an invitation from a Pharisee to share a meal with him. He reclines at the meal and Jesus uh, 
the Pharisee was surprised that Jesus didn't first wash his hands as is required by their law. Obviously, the Pharisee pointed that out to Jesus, who responded with some withering home truths. Firstly, a rebuke, verse 40. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. If you fill your spiritual eyes with the wrong stuff, your insides will be contaminated. Remember Mary from a couple of weeks ago? She chose to listen to Jesus. She chose to fill her spiritual insides with that which is good. Jesus then launches into into six woes. In some places a woe is a warning, but here the woes express a a combination of grief, dismay and sadness. I would want to add disappointment, I think, over those who fail to recognise the misery of their condition. So woe number one concerns the Pharisees and their tithes. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. It's a bit of an absurd picture really. These socially powerful men gathered around a set of scales, removing a precise amount of garden herbs with hearts that cared deeply about the weight of mint but cared little for God or neighbour. In contrast, Jesus was just the opposite. His mission was defined by justice and the love of God and neighbour. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then woe number two, Jesus then focuses on their desire, the Pharisees' desire for acclaim and recognition. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Still happens today and uh, often those who find themselves in high positions twist the honour due to the leader into a hunger for praise. The Pharisees were eager for people to flatter them and exalt them in religious and social settings. And of course, in contrast, Jesus, who deserved the seat of honour, did not seek out popularity but sought out and associated with the lowly. In fact, as Philippians 2 verse 8 said, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But make no mistake, as Philippians continues on, one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But during his earthly ministry, he sacrificed his own comfort, ego, and reputation for others. Woe number three, uh, chapter 11, verse 44. It's Jesus' final woe against the Pharisees and it's the most severe. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. According to the Jewish law, anyone who encountered a dead body or walked on a grave was unclean. Remember this story is about Jesus not washing his hands? So since the Pharisees were devoted to ceremonial cleanliness, Jesus' image of them was horrifying for them. 
In sharp contrast, the mercy and power of Jesus are demonstrated in his touch. Jesus made unclean people clean. Luke 4 and 9, for example. And then woe number four is the first of three woes focused on the other religious groups, on the lawyers in the crowd. Verse 46, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Quite self-explanatory. It's easy to see Jesus as the contrast and this time we look at Matthew where Jesus says, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden of following Jesus is dying to oneself, which is another way of saying, listen and obey. Why number five? It's the hardest of the six to decipher, uh, 47 to 51, just a few verses. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you built their tombs. Now, there's a whole bit more there, but the point of this charge is that it's much easier to honour a dead prophet than the living one that's standing in front of you exposing who you truly are. Building memorials to the prophets gave the appearance of honouring them and their message, but Jesus calls it for what it was. It is a sham. So Jesus is directly applying his warning about the men of Nineveh and the Queen of the South judging this generation. He's applying it to them because a prophet greater than Jonah and a teacher greater than Solomon was right there in front of them and they were not repenting or seeking to learn and to listen from his wisdom. They were just like their fathers who would seek, persecute and kill Jesus and his apostles. And then the final woe, woe, verse 52, woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. I think the point of scripture is to point people to God. And the experts in the law had put so many boundaries around that that people no longer could see God. Jesus called people to follow him, to hear his teaching and obey it and worship the Father. He sought his Father's presence and he wanted his Father's house flung open for many. And Jesus used the key of knowledge, which is the understanding of the nature and the will of God. That's the key of knowledge, understanding the nature and will of God to bring people to God. Is it any wonder then that the final verse of chapter 11 we read, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So when Jesus announced these quite formal woes, he wasn't simply saying he disliked such attitudes. 
the detailed observance that left the heart untouched, the, the piety that boosted self-importance, the pollution that appeared as clean and wholesome. It wasn't simply that he disapproved of the objectionable practices of, of these other groups. It was that he could see where these beliefs and practices would lead and it would lead to a terrible outcome in which the present generation would bring upon itself the pent-up devastation of the centuries. They'd all been waiting for this time and this group is going to miss it. And Jesus is quite upset about that. So that's the introduction. Now to the point, which will be pretty short, by the way. Let's have a look at all the, uh, all the lists together, if we can, up on the screen, and we'll just follow that through. Teach us to pray, which is about intimacy with God. If an evil is driven out and you don't fill it with something good, there will be, it will be seven times worse. You have been given a sign, repent or be judged. Your spiritual eyes are the lamp of your body. Fill it with that which is God, good and godly. And if you don't fill your life with what is good and godly, this is the outcome. One rebuke and six woes. One plus six equals seven, matching the seven evils at the top. Can you see the connection then between this intimate relationship with God who will give you the good gift of the Holy Spirit or condemnation and judgment as your life is filled with contamination. Here then is the takeaway. Repent, listen and obey, and practice intimacy with God. Or face the consequences of our choices. Jonathan keeps reminding us, hear and obey. I think we've heard that. Sarah, Sarah helped us to understand intimacy with God which leaves me with repent. As we long to wander along in life, we can find ourselves moving away from God. This moving away turns into a, a rather slippery slope. Just imagine it. And the further we go, the steeper and slipperier it becomes until the point where it would seem that there is no climbing out of this hole. It's too deep, it's too slippery. We wander into the bottom of this hole, we find ourselves bogged down by the filth on our shoes, our boots, our feet, and even all over us. So when we're there, how do we then repent? Well, I recall a preacher from a long time ago, I was uh, listening to them, and they got rather overexcited. Repent, he shouted. Turn around 360 degrees and repent. <laughs> My suggestion is just turn 180 degrees, folks. And even when we feel like we're at the bottom of a very deep, very slippery hole covered in filth, when we turn 180 degrees, there is Jesus right there with his arms open waiting to intimately embrace us and it is he who carries us out of that hole. The people of Nineveh fasted with sackcloth and ashes. We have Jesus who has done all that is needed in our behalf. We sung a little earlier, you pick me up, you turn me round, you put my feet on solid ground. That's Jesus. 
So just to finish off, I want to answer the question that I asked earlier. Perhaps we are still a wicked generation seeking a sign. I know I've done it. Lord, I just want a sign that I should do this or not do that. Well, how about if God sent his son into the world to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven? Would that be enough of a sign? Or how about if God promised his Holy Spirit to live in you, to have the power to live a holy life? Would that be enough of a sign? Or how about if God created a book that explained in detail how to know intimacy with God and filled it with stories of people's lives that have been transformed by his power? Would that be enough of a sign? Friends, there is hope in this world if we trust in those signs. Repent, listen and obey, practice intimacy with God and as we sung earlier, it is well with my soul. As the worship team comes up, we're going to pray. Gracious God, if all is not well with our soul, if we are hurting and broken, we know that Jesus is calling. Friends here and online and everywhere, listen for his voice. He is saying so gently and yet so loudly, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you, Jesus. We hear your call and we respond in love to your grace and mercy and it is well with our soul. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to the Seeds Church podcast. We hope you join in with us next week. For more information, you can visit our website at seedschurch.org.